Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Today, we're going to talk about gender diversity and in particular, health and wellness for persons who identify as transgender. Recent reports suggest that as many as 1 in 200 adults may be trans. That's about half of 1% of our population, or as many as 175,000 Canadians. And we're learning more about trans kids, youth and adults daily as more and more people speak publicly about their lived experience. Because of this, we now have a better understanding of how to meaningfully include more diverse gender identities and expressions in our everyday lives. And one of those key areas is sports, recreation, and health. Today, we have two experts on the topic who have both shared lived experiences as individuals who have identified as transgender and have made significant impacts on the inclusion of individuals in their community, through their education and advocacy. Our first guest was one of our first fitness experts on the show, personal trainer and educator, Dane Woodland. Dane is a personal trainer and public speaker in St. John's, Newfoundland, focused on transforming gender diverse experience in health and wellness. Dane has given a TEDx youth talk and been a contributor to Transversing, an award-winning publication by Breakwater Books and the development of trans-specific learning materials for prospective nurses through the CanSim virtual learning platform. Dane brings his unique skills into his movement practice by striving to help people feel supported and welcomed while engaging in exercise. In the second part of the show, we have a gender diversity trailblazer, author and advocate, Gemma Hickey. There's a lot of information that we need to hear that's packed into today's episode. So let's get to it. Hey, Dane, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me here today. Well, it's good to have you back. You were, I think, my third episode ever. We started talking about how people have to train at home, which at the time was like, woof, mind-blowing, mm-hmm. you know? So it's been, a, it's been a heck of a year. Today, we're going to talk about something very different than that. We're going to talk about something that's near and dear to you, and that's mm-hmm. going to be about gender diversity and health. Can you tell me a bit about your background and your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is, it's kind of funny, uh, even referencing, you know, that past um, that past interview we did, we're really kind of hitting at that intersection of where I am professionally and also where I am personally. So I am a fitness professional, but I am also, I guess, within the, the umbrella of gender diversity is an emerging conversation right now uh, because I'm transgender. So I have been trans now since, gee, it's been seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing, actually, because I've had part of my career uh, as a fitness professional and, and within the wellness industry as a woman and then a part of it as a man. So that has really informed a lot of uh, viewpoints that I wouldn't have otherwise had. It's allowed me to see some needs that we have in the fitness community and also within the trans community. And I'm, I'm really passionate about making some changes about that because I have seen how being a fitness professional has allowed me to belong in some of these spaces a little bit more, but I've also seen how other people want to come into those spaces and might not feel that they're best served by the current structures that we have right now. Well, that's right. And there's a couple of ways I want to take it from today. There's individuals that are listening that are going through that process themselves, but there's also individuals in the population that are becoming a little bit aware about the issues, but they really don't know enough information. I think it's important that we share that information. Why is it valuable for us to have conversations like this and to share this with with people listening today? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's 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 valuable for a number of reasons. And I think that the big one is, is really belonging. And you know, that can sound like kind of a lofty thing, uh, but if you've never had to question if you're going to belong, if you're going to feel invited or welcomed uh, in a certain space, maybe that doesn't really feel like it's a big deal to you. 
Um, but for people who don't experience belonging in certain spaces, that can have some really negative outcomes. You know, when we think about wellness, it's, it's such a broad term that involves so many different things. And, and part of that wellness is that social wellness, is that ability to, to feel like you belong in certain spaces. And a lot of focus right now is on inclusion. But I actually just want to share a quote with you. I was just, I was just reading it earlier. And it's, it's inclusion is, is not bringing people into what already exists. It's making a new space, a better space for everybody. And that's a quote by Dr. George Dave. And I think about that, you know, we have these current spaces that don't allow people to belong and don't allow people to feel good. And they want to belong. They want to have the access to the same things, the friendships, the services, you know, the gyms, the facilities, the healthcare, whatever it is. And your inability to access those things time and time again can really have a huge impact on your wellness. So it's important for us as service providers, as people who share those spaces to join this conversation so that we can create more belonging for more people. Well, that's such a great point because the social determinants of health, which are things that include inclusion and having things available to an individual to be healthy, are sometimes just as important as the habits that they do to be healthy. And so this is a really important conversation. Just to set the foundation for people that are listening, can you explain the difference between bioanatomical male and female versus gender identity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So bioanatomical male and female, that is just kind of that like, purely biological XX, XY chromosomal set of characteristics that we apply to people. It's, it's a binarized system and it is a system that exists right now that doesn't always hold space for the variations that do exist within the XX, XY. Um, so typically, and we, we use the language within the trans community, um, like designated male at birth or designated female at birth. Mm. Um, and so then gender is actually like those characteristics. So when you ask someone, you know, what they think it means to be a man or means to be a woman, or, you know, we hear people say, this is manly, this is womanly, this is girly. Everyone has these like preconceived notions. Sometimes they're very unconscious biases that we do hold, but we see them, you know, from like career choice to what kind of music you like, to the sports you play, to the type of drinks you like, you know what I mean? The the clothes you wear, it it really kind of permeates everything. And so that's kind of the, the difference there. And those differences, of course, are very important in our understanding and also how we move forward and again, offer certain services to know how we categorize those things. Well, they program us from birth. I saw a post the other day where somebody's talking about why are little girls' clothes different sizes or smaller relative to the same weight as a, as a little boy? And why are they pink and blue and everything else? So we are assigned these things. But I think that the definition of gender in today's society might be mistaken because it's something that society labels us based on these chromosomal characteristics of the individual. But really, it's the individual who defines their gender, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I was just thinking about this as you were sharing your example. I know a story of a teacher out on the West Coast of Newfoundland who, in a third grade classroom, did this activity where she put a piece of string across the room and attached it to the wall. And on one wall, it was these like very stereotypical boy activities and boy things. You know, I was like the trucks and the, like the, the dirt, the mud and the sports and like, you know, that kind of stuff. And then on the other side of the room, it was kind of like, flowers, pink, it's again, it's these stereotypes, right? Um, and I, it's, I don't even need to continue because most people probably know what yeah. contents were on either side of the room. And so this teacher actually said to these eight, nine-year-old students, okay, I want you to look at the things on the walls. And if you like only these things or only those things, 
you know, that's cool, whatever. I want you to put your hand somewhere on this, on this piece of string and let me know where you are. And not one student was at the polar end because they were like, I like some of this stuff, but I also like some of this stuff. And so it's, it's very interesting how we can really align gender with that designation at birth, you know, whether we designate someone as male or female uh, when they're born and say, okay, and, and then think, you know, extrapolating, well, because you are born this way, that you then have to be this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's so fascinating. Um, yeah. Gender specifically, you know, it, it almost comes across as, as being interchangeable with sex in that way, almost like it's like a, a euphemism for it. Like people don't want to say sex. I don't want to talk about that word. It's not something that, you know, a lot of people feel comfortable saying. And so then we conflate the two when they are actually two separate concepts. Yes, exactly. And I think that there is a lot of pressure for people to fit those stereotypes a lot of the time. You know, so if we talk a little bit about your story, I mean, you you made a transition from being female to male. And can you explain a little bit about that process and, and the challenges yes. that you face? Because that had to be a really hard decision in certain ways, maybe not for you personally, but what, what you were expecting from the public, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it is very fascinating in, in so many ways. It's so layered. It's, it was a challenge in, in the sense that like, I knew that I was stepping into a world that probably wasn't going to be as welcoming to me. And that was going to be a little more challenging for me. And I, and I, I came to know this because even in, in the research that I was doing, when I started to kind of figure out what was going on, a lot of what I was reading online was not positive. Um, it didn't say like, you know, you're, you're going to like, you get to be yourself. You get to be authentic. It, it was more like, this is really awful. The mental health outcomes are not good. There's higher rates of suicide. There's higher rates of violence. And, and so I'm thinking like, my gosh, like, you know, what am I getting myself into? And even outside of those sets of violence, there was also this kind of experience where I was trying to decide how do I be a man? What do I need to do to be a man? And I think that was actually very much informed by, again, like those stereotypes, you know? Growing up as a, as a small child, I can remember the criticism in some of my behaviors. Like I have my little like dress and my tights on and I might be lying and have my legs kind of like stuck up and being told like, that's not very ladylike. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't care. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. I didn't know at the time, yeah. uh, that, you know, just how deeply that ran that I didn't care. But from an early age, being ladylike was something that I was, I was taught to do. And then all of a sudden I, I realized, yeah, I really don't want to be ladylike at all. Um, And in fact, I actually want to learn how to be more, more manly. And I found myself in trying to almost like assimilate or trying to really express the gender identity that I felt was more true to me. I found myself almost then like studying men around me. How do they walk? How do they talk? What do they do? What do they wear? And I've almost come full circle with it now where I'm in this place that now I'm at, I understand that being a man is whatever I want it to be. And it mm-hmm. can look like whatever I want it to look like. It doesn't have to be what the guy next to me is doing. It's whatever feels good. It feels true to me. And that is this like purely like freeing and beautiful experience to have. And I'm so glad to have found myself in this, in this position with how I see myself. That's Dane Woodland, fitness expert and gender diversity advocate. We're talking about transgender health, wellness, and athletics. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. We're here with Dane Woodland, fitness expert and diversity advocate. We're talking about transgender health, wellness, and athletics. Let's get back to the interview. 
Uh, what are the challenges that individuals face when they're dealing with the medical system? Because I think that's a huge area that people have to learn how to navigate. How do individuals that have these specific medical needs being included in the system and, and what's being done to bring them in? It's, it's amazing how, how things have shifted because even for myself, you know, in the last seven years, since I first went to uh, seek out a doctor and, and where, I'm, where I'm at now, uh, things have changed, which is really, really good. But also so much room for, for more uh, development in this realm, for, uh, for sure. I think that kind of dovetailing off my last response there about lack of tools and resources and stuff, is, is this, it is the same thing in the medical world. And I think that it's on both ends. It can be difficult for someone like myself to find a healthcare practitioner who it can confidently offer services that would be supportive of my needs. And on the flip side, I think it's also difficult for healthcare practitioners to actually have the tools that they need to be able to offer the services that, that folks like myself would require. So I can remember when I first uh, was seeking a doctor, I was uh, of the impression and understood that there was one doctor in St. John's who, who was available to me. And I believe now, and you know, I haven't gone looking for a doctor in a long time, but I think now it's two. You know, you're not you're not seeing it as this thing that you go into your your general practitioner for the most for the most part, and that your GP is is comfortable with it. It's usually that you are going to another doctor for trans specific care. So that means that you end up kind of at this at this bottleneck where anybody who is gender diverse and seeking supports from a medical professional who is able to offer the right tools and the right resources, those doctors are just taking on all of the patients that we have. And that's in Metro St. John's. So if you think specifically about Newfoundland, you know, anywhere outside of the Avalon, you know, we do have in some of the other communities, like I, I grew up in Cornwall, for example, and I know that there is at least one doctor out there as well. But in lots of places, there are, simply is no access. Mm-hmm. And not only is there no access, but there's oftentimes like either a reluctance or again, a lack of awareness around it so that people don't even know like what to do in order to be supportive. What I'm seeing changing now is that there's more resources available, but I think what I'm seeing change is that there's a willingness to start to look for them because from what I know from peers in educational spaces right now around like say nursing, pharmacy, studies to become a doctor, the coverage on content related to trans needs and experience is, is, is quite minimal. I weighed in on this tool, it's called CanSim, and had feedback from a couple of my peers who, you know, saw at the end of it, like, oh, like, we saw your picture, we saw that you contributed, and they said that it was it was a really valuable tool, but otherwise, like, they don't actually talk about it a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you go out into the real world, and boom, you know, you meet with a transgender patient, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? Uh? Right. And honestly, the trans patient, or at least in my case, I'm also in there like, <laughs> so everyone's like freaking out yeah. <laughs> doesn't know what's gonna happen so yeah. again it's that lack of uh lack of resources i think on both sides yeah. so you know they're out there so now it's, it's now it's integrating them into our learning a little bit more it is a learning process you know there's this show topic came up for a couple things number one me and you've had lots of conversations when it comes to this topic in the fitness industry but secondly i'm teaching at the medical school and i taught the reproductive system and 
being able to navigate what are traditionally male and female reproductive mm-hmm. organs into individuals that have organ A, B, and C is something that needs to be done because individuals will be facing that when they get out in the real world. So uh, it's, it's definitely evolving all the time. And that's why these conversations I think are so important. If you're an individual that is looking at investigating, making a change, what advice would you give them about seeking out medical help, but also what they need to do for research like you did? Honestly, I think a really important thing, um, and this was really valuable to me as well, is to, to find like supports and community. So when I very early on um, in my transition, well, before my transition, it really initiated, I had like this like mentor. And so this was a person who had transitioned uh, or initiated a transition, we'll say, a couple of years prior to myself. And so this person was kind of like my sounding board. I was able to ask questions, you know, point me in the right direction, that sort of thing. And having that support and having that community, you know, I talked about belonging at the beginning of the show. It was so, so important to me because it allowed me to feel affirmed. It allowed me to know that someone else had been through the same things as me. And it also gave me the confidence that I think that I needed to move forward. In addition to having those supports, I would also encourage people to be, you have to be your own advocate in a bit of a way. You have to be a little bit skeptical because, you know, I've, I've talked about it a couple of times already, the resources and tools are not out there. So sometimes like you do have to, to take the time to say, okay, you know, maybe it's not this, maybe it could be something else, or I've been doing some reading about whatever. And, and to bring that up, I can give you a, you know, a really interesting example from my own experience. I had this like kind of like freak accident where I uh, I broke my pinky a couple of years ago, demonstrating in a group fitness class. And what happened was I was jumping, and when I swung my arm back and then swung my arm forward, I actually like swung my arm super hard and caught my pinky off of my leg, and I I got a boxer fracture, which is normally what you get when you you know you throw a punch or something. And so the mechanism that caused that injury every doctor that I saw was like, okay, this is super weird. You don't hit your hand off your own leg and, you know, create this, this fracture. And so my doctor actually sent me off for a bone density scan because we were wondering if there had been any changes in my bone density as a result of anything that was going on. Because oftentimes we know that people who are designated female at birth, uh, post menopause, uh, we see changes in bone density in aging women. So I'm not an aging woman, but I am someone who no longer menstruates, who was designated female at birth. And there's literature out there about what happens pre and post hysterectomy to that bone density and what the outcomes are. So anyway, spoiler alert, my bone density came back fine. I just really actually swung my arm really hard against my leg. But not many people would know to check for that kind of stuff. That's right. You know? Yeah, that's right. Well, on two sides of the equation, number one, you're being compared to a normal population and you're way stronger than the average person. So that's the first (laughs) thing. And then secondly, yes, you've got a a unique history when it comes to what potentially could be bone density risks. It's really interesting. So both of those, an extremely fit person coming in and then somebody who's transitioned would be a real curveball for most physicians. I could see that. So let's talk a little bit about fitness right now. If you were to group the biggest challenges that transgender populations face when it comes to being involved in fitness, what would they be? I think in general, it's, it's, and it kind of loops back to what I said uh, a few moments ago about, you know, the spirit belonging and knowing that there's, or not even knowing, but expecting that there's going to be barriers in whatever spaces that you enter. I think that applies to the fitness realm as well. And I think there's so many stories about fitness spaces, not only from the, from the trans community, but from, from many people 
about how they feel like the gym can be a very intimidating place, whether that's because they don't have a lot of knowledge about how to exercise or because they feel like, you know, the people around them are looking at them or bigger than them or whatever. So that's like a, a thing that we see across many genders. But specifically for folks who are trans, one of the big, big things is that fear of violence in the, the binarized gender change rooms. As we know, there's not going to be any video cameras in a change room, obviously. I don't, none of us want that. But the change room is where we are most vulnerable. It's usually where we're changing our clothing and also least protected. So there's a lot of fear about going into these spaces, changing your clothes, or behaving in a way around changing your clothes that might make people kind of wonder what's going on. For myself, if I was to say, make the choice to change my clothes in the bathroom stall instead of out in the open area, there's, there's this idea that I'm thinking, is, are people wondering why I'm changing in the bathroom? Do they think I've got something to hide? And I've had surgery on my chest, so I, I feel quite confident taking my shirt off. But for the time prior to that, when I was wearing what's called a binder, which was, which was meant to compress and give me a flatter chest, I, I wouldn't be caught dead in a change room. Like I, I, I would not go in there. And I was very fortunate at the time that I was in that period of, of my transition that I actually worked at a gym that had a staff bathroom. And so I was able to go in there in a private space. But that is a big, big issue. And the facilities that I've been in, I haven't been into a publicly available gender neutral change space, at least not here in Newfoundland. I have actually experienced it in Vancouver when I went away. They had a bunch of single stalls and then like kind of a common area where people were, you know, put their socks on and fixing their hair. And that was, that was really cool. And also demonstrated that it could be done. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I think is, is the little things, right? It's, it's the form collection. It's, it's like, you know, you go to sign up in the gym and they say, tick one, male or female. And you're like, well, you know, that doesn't really, that doesn't really hold space for me. Or even just some of the, the ways that we approach fitness, that we assume people's goals might be around certain things, or just the general attitudes. A lot of people don't feel confident in those spaces. And I think if you're already going into a space expecting that people are going to judge you, people might see, see you uh, as being trans, that people might be judging you because you're trans, and then you're having experiences where the types of motivation or reinforcement are not positive. Mm -hmm. It just really compounds into this issue where you don't feel good in spaces like that. Yeah, that's right. And you go into hyper-masculine, hyper-feminine things like the gym where, where you know, those things are on display. Uh, I can see how that could be challenging for folks. One thing that people should all know is that everybody in the gym seems to be a little bit insecure these days. You're never big enough, never fit enough, never anything. And that's society. So true. But uh, I'm, those are a unique set of challenges for people that make it even harder for people to participate. And we said, you know, being included is such a key part of whether you can even engage in a healthy lifestyle. Let's chat sports for a sec. You know, when I think mm. about sports, professional sports or Olympics or everything else, there's usually a men's and women's league. What's being done? for inclusivity when it comes to gender diverse populations at competitive sports levels? Yeah. So it's, it's you know, that's a, such a hot topic right now, especially with a lot of the, uh, the bills emerging, you know, in the United States, American media just dominates our news cycle. And so we're, we're hearing a lot about it too. And I think it's in some ways it's important that we're aware because it's something that could happen to us. And that's, that's like a little bit ominous, but I think it's important that we, we know that. There are actually regulations that are made. The Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport has a really beautiful, comprehensive, huge document that's done, backed by science. It takes you right from the early stages of athletic development right to this top-tier high performance. 
And we have those resources there. And, you know, what's being done at, at the high level, as long as folks are within the ranges that we would be testing for, it's all good. Right. And pretty standard. And so that actually takes this thing that seems to be so complicated and up for debate so much. Like it's, it's actually already figured out. It's just that it seems to be that there is this, what do I do sort of conversation around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm doing some consulting right now with Softball Canada and putting a lot of efforts into ensuring that we're able to create safety and belonging for a whole host of diversity with the board that I'm working with. But I think that the big block is always, what do I do? And, mm-hmm. I've, and I've had that even from local sport organizations as well. And, you know, it's, it's about like, well, how will the parents receive this? How will the other athletes receive this? What will the coaches say? I'm learning this uh, more and more through some of this consulting work. That's not always just about having the policy. It's about rolling it out, Mm. integrating it and weaving it into whatever it is that we're doing to, you know, create belonging in that sport. That's Dane Woodland, fitness expert and gender diversity advocate. We're talking about transgender health, wellness, and athletics. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. We're here with Dane Woodland, fitness expert and diversity advocate. We're talking about transgender health, wellness, and athletics. Let's get back to the interview. Let's talk a little bit about some of the positive things that have come out of this, because there have been a lot of things that have occurred. People are becoming more aware of it. What has changed recently, at least, and how are we moving forward and in progressing inclusivity? Mm, yeah. So, you know, what? there's, it's, I'm, I'm so glad to be talking about this because I can remember very early on that. I thought that my outcomes as a trans person were not going to be very good because all of the literature, everything I saw was not positive. I remember in a, a class, sociology professor of mine, Dr. Craig, the commentary was that sometimes we're so focused on problem solving for trans folks that we create this narrative that they're always in crisis mm-hmm. and that we lose sight of these success stories. And some of these success stories, like those are the things that people need to see. They don't need to see only this idea that like, I'm going to grow up in a world of challenges. It's going to be hard. Yes. You know, prepare people for that. Give them the tools that they need to be resilient and to, to be resourceful and creative. But there are these successes on a very small level or not small level, but on a local level, I should say, even in our legislation, we've seen a lot of transformation in previous years. Kai Reese had uh, advocated through the courts for folks like myself and anybody who wants to change their gender marker on their identification, that change can be made now without having any sort of surgery. And prior to that decision, it was actually required that you had to have like surgery on your genitals, which is like a very, very big deal. A surgery oftentimes that, you know, more so than some of the other procedures that people pursue, this is like kind of the big daunting one and not accessible to all. So say, for example, you know, you want to go pick up your mail or you want to go into a place where you need to be an age of majority and you have to be ID'd, you run the risk, you are afraid that you are going to be outed, that you're going to be treated a certain way because of that and that you're going to be unsafe. So that's it. That's a, a really huge one. And then we go, we can take that a step further. We think about Gemma Hickey and their advocacy and how Gemma has has done incredible work to allow for not only us to have the freedom to choose male or female, but also to choose neither of those genders and to have an X on our documents as well, which again, starts to just broaden the space just a little bit more. So these are like some very powerful things that have happened, mm-hmm. you know, just here in our province. We've also had changes in terms of access to gender-affirming care. I will say, actually, that Newfoundland and Labrador has been 
even from when I started my transition seven years ago, we have practiced this informed consent model with access to hormones, which has not always been the case in other places. There's lots of stories of people having to live for an entire year before taking hormones, have to have a psychiatric assessment, that sort of thing. In our province, it's this will happen, this won't happen. Do you agree? This will happen. These are the risks, whatever. You go through all the clauses, you sign off, you're good to go. You do your blood work. Okay, great. You can get on your gender affirming hormone therapy. So that's a good thing we have going. And then also access to surgeries has been, and you know, this is all specifically medical, but access to surgeries has really changed because when I had first undergone my, uh, my transition and also even when I had chest surgery at the time, the province was outsourcing folks to the Center for Addictions and, Me- and Mental Health in Toronto in order to be diagnosed as trans, which is just like entirely problematic uh, on its own. And, and there was a very long wait list. And also what the province was willing to cover at that point was not as comprehensive as it is now. So now we have it that doctors can do this surgery readiness questionnaire in-house. And we have a relationship with a uh, clinic in Montreal that does a, a lot of gender affirming surgeries and is really well known for it. And so now we're creating access for these sorts of treatments that we wouldn't otherwise have. So those strides are so, so positive. Outside of medicine, you know, you're seeing more visibility in terms of like popular media. You are seeing spaces that are wanting to consult with people so that they can learn how to be more inclusive, so they can make these practices. You're seeing new buildings come in with the gender inclusive bathrooms. Uh, You know, you are seeing sport organizations trying to figure out, okay, what can I do to include? How can I make more space? So we are definitely working toward more and more equity for folks who are trans or non-binary, which is so reassuring because for the people who even came before myself, who had to navigate and kind of trailblaze to have the changes that I was lucky to reap the benefits of, you know, it, it has been a challenge. And kind of like you've referenced even the changes in the fitness industry in the last 20 years or so, it's been very big in terms of changes for gender diversity and trans inclusion as well. Right. So let's get into some of the work you do. So not only are you heavily involved in the fitness industry, one of the most respected people in the fitness industry in the city for sure, <laughs> but you also do consulting with companies to help mm-hmm. them navigate this because, you know, it's dealing with customers and dealing with their staff. Yep. And, you know, tell us about that work. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing how much it's taken off. Like I, you know, when I first kind of, I entered the media probably five, five or six years ago now, um, when I was actually rallying, um, for some of this change around gender affirming surgeries, because I, I actually ended up going to, um, and I was very fortunate to be able to do this, but I had have, I have private surgery in Mississauga, Ontario, because at the time, um, the access to uh, chest surgery through uh, provincial healthcare was, was not um, something that I was going to avail of because of the loopholes and all the challenges. So when I got involved in that, I started getting asked, you know, come to the school, come to this organization, whatever. And so that was something that started very small. But especially in the last year, and, and honestly, with the, with the thanks of the, the work of Black Lives Matter, which unfortunately has been sparked by deaths that should not have happened, a lot of organizations are scrambling, not just for practices that are anti-racist, but also practices that are anti-oppressive in many ways. And of course, a, a very prominent a form of oppression that we talk about in the media is trans oppression. And again, I mentioned, you know, we're seeing a lot in the news cycle right now in the United States with what's going on with trans folks. So it, what started out as a very small thing has actually just continued to snowball and grow and grow. 
which is allowing me to actually have contracts with bigger organizations. And what you're seeing is, you know, is exactly what you said. It's, it's looking at, you know, both the macro and the micro. So it, it is, you know, the outward content. Like I've consulted with, um, you know, different organizations about blog posts or mail outs that they're sending out and about trans-inclusive language. Um, I'm consulting right now with a certifying body that I work with as a personal trainer. I actually hold a certification with this organization. And they sent out an email mail out recently with a case study about someone who was trans and it was very outdated. And that actually allowed for us to collaborate and for me to, to get an opportunity to work with them so that the coaches that they're teaching will have the right tools to then go out and kind of, it's almost like that networking, that spread of influence. You know, we mm -hmm. start kind of at the hub make sure it's done well there, and then we can pass out that knowledge otherwise. So it's things like that, but then it's also like the little things. It's like about your employee relations. So I've also worked with organizations on the internal side. What do we do within our workplace? Is it, you know, when you hire an employee, do I have MF or do I say gender blank? Or do I ask for just pronouns on a particular sheet? Why am I collecting the person's gender or sex? Does it matter? Is it relevant? Little things like popping pronouns into your email signatures, whatever it is. So it's it's really cool that we're seeing people wanting to know what to do, because I think that sometimes the idea is that it has to be a big overhaul to allow for people to feel more supported and more included. But there are lots of these little like low hanging fruit, quick wins that can allow you to just start to move in the right direction and start to move the needle a little bit in making spaces more equitable uh, and more inclusive for folks who are trans. I love that. Well, I think that today's conversation will help uh, everybody that's listening to be more inclusive and to feel like they can be included as well. So thank you so much for sharing your story, your expertise, and all this information with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, that was Dane Woodland, fitness expert and gender diversity advocate. When we come back, we'll be joined by Gemma Hickey, human rights advocate and author. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Joining me for the last part of the show is Gemma Hickey. Gemma is a passionate humanist whose activism has changed the legal landscape of Canada, expanding rights, equality, and dignity for the LGBTQ2 community and raising awareness for survivors of clergy abuse. Gemma's physical and personal journey through gender transformation is the subject of Just Be Gemma, a documentary produced by Nine Island Communications. As a well-known force for change, Gemma co-led the movement that legalized same-sex marriage in Canada in 2005. In 2017, the request for a gender-neutral birth certificate spurred Newfoundland and Labrador to change its law, and Gemma became the first person in Canada to receive a non-binary birth certificate. They join me via Zoom to talk more about this important topic. Hi, Gemma. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, buddy. Pleasure to uh, be here. I'm glad you're here. You are the resident expert when it comes to the topic we're talking about today, and that is rights for transgender and non-binary individuals. But today we're going to take a bit of a focus on specifically health, wellness, and sport. Can you give us a bit of background on your history? Because you've, you've changed some laws at the national level in it, your human rights activism. Wow. I mean... Well, thank you for the kind words that you uh, that you just said. I appreciate that. I have been an advocate for over 20 years. I've um, been involved nationally, internationally, and of course, provincially with various causes, most notably uh, same-sex marriage and recent efforts to change identity documents for people who are transgender and non-binary. 
that, of course, picked up press all over the world and created a, a really amazing ripple effect across the country and, and uh, in different parts of the world. I try to practice mental wellness and, and physical wellness as much as I can. I, I did a walk across uh, Newfoundland back in 2015 to raise money for uh, an organization called Pathways for Survivors of Clergy Abuse. And I wrote a book about it. And while on the walk, I uh, got in touch with myself in a new way and realized that um, I've been dealing with not just issues of sexuality growing up, but uh, issues of gender identity. And so the end of the walk, I uh, transitioned or I began the process to transition and didn't really want to subscribe to, to either gender, really. Didn't feel exclusively male or exclusively female. I had lived experience for 38 years as a, a, a woman. And I felt like I didn't want to erase that history, nor should I have to. And so uh, that's when I decided to really move forward with some legal challenges because I knew there were a lot of kids out there suffering. And I was in a place where I was able to to do my parts. That's a little bit of a background on me. My book got published overseas. So it's doing really well in Japan now. And, and it talks about Newfoundland, identity, and growing up Irish Roman Catholic, as well as coming to terms with being outside of a binary and either or, and showing that there's complicated aspects to identity. And we don't necessarily have to identify as one thing or another. We just are. And it's just a process of being a continual transition, essentially. That's right. Well, your documentary, Just Be Gemma, was on CBC, and it's still available on CBC Gem. I saw it just the other day in prep for this interview. But, you know, we met each other years and years ago because you've been active your entire life, and uh, you, you're still active this day. You walked across the province. So I think it's a perfect thing to talk about health and wellness. You know, when we talk about human rights, recently in the news, there's been a lot of tension, particularly given to the U.S., where rules around transgender participation in sports are being changed. Now, the new president has put rules in place to try and protect that, but on a state level, over 20 states are trying to restrict individuals who identify as transgender from competing in sports. Why is that an issue? Why are people concerned about this these days? Well, you know, I think that people are threatened by, by things they don't know or they don't understand, you know? And I think some people can grasp the concept of you know, you were born assigned male or female at birth, but then you don't actually feel male or female. Maybe you were born a boy and you feel like a girl. And so you want to transition. And maybe you were born a girl and you want to be a boy. So you transition. I think people can understand um, certain aspects of that. I also think that the majority of people can understand why same-sex couples would want to get married because heterosexual couples can marry. And so they have a frame of reference. But when you talk about things like um, being non-binary, you know, people don't have a frame of reference. You know, you don't want to subscribe to either gender. Well, where does that place you? Mm-hmm. That's kind of beyond people's level of understanding because it's not what we're used to. And then we get threatened by that. People get threatened by that sort of thing that they don't really, they can't relate to, for example. I think sports is a, a gray area now. And I think it's really important that these types of discussions are happening because you know, I know a lot of men, people who identify as men who were, who were born uh, male, who um, aren't as physically fit as a lot of uh, women that I know who were born female. And so I don't think we, we can look at gender as some um, measuring stick to exclude people from different types of sports. I think that for me, uh, I know that I did that walk across the island. And, uh, you know, it was pure estrogen powered. And after the walk, I transitioned. And, and honestly, I couldn't walk length of myself for a while until I got the hang of this hormone, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, 
again, like I think a lot of the uh, the mental uh, fortitude that it took to accomplish a 908 uh, kilometer walk across the island was all in my mind, my mental strength. Mm-hmm. That's what it is usually. And I think we need to move away from, um, and I'm not sure if we want to do that entirely, you know, from categorizing, um, you know, abilities uh, based on gender. Like we need to move away from these gendered scripts. For me, when I was, when I applied for my birth certificate, you know, a new birth certificate to be non-binary. Yes. There was no, there was only a female and male category on, on the application. And so I wrote in non-binary with a box next to it and checked that off. So literally carving out a space. Mm-hmm. So when I try to talk to people about what I'm doing, I try to reassure them and say, look, I'm not trying to take away from gender, how people identify. It's very important. You know, people's identity is very personal. Nobody should have to comment on that. In fact, I'm just trying to add something. Right. And I mean, you know, looking at the scientific literature, it shows that there really is no advantage based on hormone levels, which is what they've been measuring athletes in for a long time. And there's tons of sports where women excel, like ultra marathons, some of the most grueling events versus men and vice versa and tall people versus short people. So people are equal, but not the same. And I think that's really where the conversation is kind of going. Um, I like the learning. Yeah, well, way to put it. The other thing about it is that, you know, there there seems to be a lot of animosity, even from people that aren't competing in the sport against individuals that may be transgender. For example, there's a Canadian athlete named Rachel McKinnon, and she won the Masters World Championship in 2018. She said she received over 100,000 hate messages. You know, how do we educate people to avoid this form of ignorance and this cruelty uh, towards athletes that are just trying to compete and, and be engaged? Well, you know, I think... You know, we've come a long way in, in many ways, but uh, just because women won the right to vote doesn't mean that there's uh, sexism is, is, has been erased. You know, mm. um, just because we had the civil rights movement doesn't mean that uh, people of color don't experience racism. You know, I, I, so I think it's really important to keep the conversation going, but to to be respectful and to anticipate bumps in the road. And, you know, as an advocate for over 20 years, I've learned how to 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 navigate those types of difficult situations. And I think for me, I've, I've gotten death threats. My property's been damaged, you know, over the years, like threats of sexual violence because I'm a public figure, you know, and that comes with being out in the public and, and that kind of vulnerability and placing yourself out there. But I think that we do have uh, more work to be done. Conversations like this really help, but uh, they're important to have. And I think we must carve out the space just as we want to carve out spaces for people who identify differently, we need to carve out the space, safe space to be able to have these types of discussions. Because I think, again, as I said earlier, sports, you know, is a gray area. And I I know for me growing up living in this imposed identity of being a girl, I wanted to play sports. I wanted to play hockey. I wanted to play, you know, ball. And I did in, in girls leagues, but I wanted to play with the boys, you know, mm-hmm. and I felt like, you know, I had talent. Uh, I was athletically inclined as a, as a kid and I, there were real, there were really no options for, for uh, young uh, women back, you know, I'm 44 now, but back when I was younger, uh, not like there are today. My God, my, my younger cousins have all kinds of opportunities. They're playing on national hockey leagues and doing really well with sports. But for me, those types of things weren't available back then. So I think that is important to, make sports uh, inclusive to everyone as much as possible because, you know, I learned so many great skills just playing sports, you know, win or lose, you shake someone's hand, 
You respect yeah. your teammates. You learn how to work with other people. You know, and I think that those are healthy and wonderful lessons for, for people uh, of all genders to, to learn. And, and competing is is natural, uh, yeah. I think, with, with humans, you know, and yeah. uh, and it's fun. So uh, yeah. all, I mean, all across the board, you know, I think it's it's important to keep this conversation going. Right. Our coach is our first boss we ever had. First person outside of our parents to tell us what to do. So that's maybe a teacher. But uh, yeah. so I think that's important. And we talk a lot about the social determinants of health here and opportunity to be healthy is just as important as the habits that we do to be healthy. So you've done some amazing things nationally, being the first person to have a, either male nor female non-binary a passport. You've written books, you've done documentaries, you walk across the province. What's next for you in your, in your human rights work? <laughs> Well, you know, um, I've been doing a lot of international work, various speaking gigs at uh, different embassies in different parts of the world. And, and that's been wonderful talking about human rights and, and my advocacy work. And, and um, you know, it's been really cool to travel these places, uh, being the first non-binary person with an ex-passport to, to enter these areas. Um, so I hope to continue that work. Unfortunately, because of COVID right now, uh, I'm not able to travel, but I'm still able to do that through Zoom. I really want to walk across Ireland. I, I, that's been on my um, agenda now for some time. I haven't really announced any plans because the pandemic got in the way, but I have been back training really hard at the gym with that in mind. I uh, did make connections there with the embassy and I haven't been to Ireland because Newfoundland and Ireland are so closely linked and because the Christian brothers and priests all came from Ireland and Ireland was hit hard, just like here clergy abuse. I felt that connection really strongly. And I founded this group called Axe Canada Advocates for Clergy Trauma Survivors, along with, you know, four other survivors in the country who I met in Rome, actually, when I was there on the, for the Papal Summit. And I wanted to walk across Ireland as a fundraiser for that uh, organization. So I'm also working on my second book. I got to finish my master's. So there's lots of fun things happening uh, happening for me. I'm always busy. I like to keep moving, whether that's walking across islands or, or just being in my office doing uh, multitasking. You know, that's just yeah. who I am. Yeah. And it's all geared towards helping other people, whether that's mentally or physically. That really helps me heal. I'm a trauma survivor. So for me... The advocacy work I do helps me to heal as, as well as others. So, uh, oh. so yeah, I'm on the go. I'm on the go. It's definitely helping a lot of people. It's definitely making an impact. And I hope that we can have you back on to give us updates on all your activities and, and maybe discuss some of these other topics that are extremely relevant. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Listen, I loved every minute of it. It was good to see you, my friend. Take care. Thank you for joining me today. I wanted to thank Dane and Gemma for sharing their stories and broadening our perspective on this important topic. As Dane said, inclusion's not bringing people into what already exists, it's making a new space, a better space for everyone. I hope you learned something new today and you share that information with others so we can create a more inclusive environment for our communities, but also in our approach to sport and health. Well, that's our episode this week. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.